Welcome to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Each week we examine the latest appeals decided by the Connecticut Supreme Court and the Connecticut Appellate Court. We focus on three areas of law, criminal law, personal injury law, and family law, each sponsored by a firm that concentrates in that type of law. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and get the newest episode each week and stay up to date on the latest case law. You can also visit our website, ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com, and register to get an alert every time a new episode is released. And now, let's get into the latest decisions after a quick word from our first sponsor. Next up, criminal law cases. If you are facing a DUI trial for one of your clients, there is no better tool in your arsenal than the Connecticut DUI Trial Handbook. This Amazon best-selling trial guide by DUI trial lawyer Jay Ruane will walk you through all the phases of a DUI trial. With the DUI trial handbook, you will have checklists for the foundational questions for all of the evidentiary issues you might encounter, and a step-by-step breakdown of the standardized field sobriety tests and how they should be done properly. All this and more in a guide you can have right on counsel table. For your free copy of this essential treatise, visit ruaneattorneys.com podcast and get one for your library today. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. It's Dan Lage here again this week, the week of November 30th, 2020. We have an interesting slate of cases on the docket this week that include what it actually takes to kick someone out of the accelerated rehabilitation program once they've been previously granted. We also have a case coming up presenting the classic problem of what you can get into with the state's key witness with regard to their prior convictions, but we're going to begin with a case that talks about statute of limitations. It's State versus Freeman. Your citation on this case is AC 43014, an opinion written by Judge Alexander, officially released December 1st, 2020. Here are your facts. On November 5, 2018, Jeffrey Gavianelli, a detective with the West Haven Police Department, received a letter from the defendant containing information about an armed robbery that had occurred at the Winepress Liquor Store in West Haven on November 29, 2013. The next day, Gavianelli visited the defendant at the Carl Robinson Correctional Institution in Enfield, where the defendant was incarcerated on unrelated charges, and the defendant confessed to Gavianelli as to his involvement in the November 29, 2013 robbery. On November 9, 2018, Gavianelli prepared an arrest warrant. On November 15th, a Superior Court judge signed that warrant. On November 19th, John Lechak, a West Haven police officer, obtained the signed warrant and submitted a request that the Office of the State's Attorney prepare an application for a writ of habeas corpus to transport the defendant to the Superior Court in the Judicial District of Ansonia Milford for the service of the arrest warrant. On November 21, 2018, the Office of the State's Attorney prepared the application for a writ of habeas corpus requesting that the defendant be transported to the court on December 6, 2018. On November 27, a prosecutor and a clerk of the court signed the writ of habeas corpus. On December 6, the defendant was transported to the Superior Court where he was served with the arrest warrant. Thereafter, the defendant filed a motion to dismiss, claiming that prosecution was barred due to the lapse of the five-year statute of limitations set forth in Connecticut General Statutes 54-193, subsection B, which provides that no person may be prosecuted for any offense other than the offense set forth in subsection A of this section for which the punishment is or may be imprisonment in excess of one year 
except within five years next after the offense had been committed. The defendant argued that the statute of limitation lapsed on November 29th, 2018, which would have been five years after the robbery, and that the state had failed to proffer sufficient evidence to show that the delay in the execution of the arrest warrant until December 6th was reasonable. The trial court denied the motion, finding that the state had offered, quote, some evidence explaining why the delay was reasonable, end quote, and the state acted reasonably and diligently in its preparation and execution of the warrant. The defendant thereafter entered a conditional plea of nolo contendere to the charge of robbery in the first degree. The court subsequently sentenced the defendant to a term of one year imprisonment to be served consecutively to his current sentence. On appeal, the defendant claimed that the court erred in denying his motion to dismiss. Now, as to this claim, the defendant argued that the trial court misinterpreted and misapplied State v. Crawford, that's 202 Connecticut 443, and State v. Swibilius, 325 Connecticut 793. The defendant specifically argued that the court applied the incorrect legal test because it focused on whether the state made, quote, some effort, end quote, to serve the warrant and did not examine whether the state had proved that those efforts were reasonable. The defendant also argued that the state failed to proffer sufficient evidence to satisfy its burden under Swibilius. The state countered that the stipulated facts admitted into evidence show the prerequisite effort made by the state and the reasonableness in the delay in the execution of the arrest warrant. The appellate court in this case states that its review of the court's legal conclusions and resulting denial of the defendant's motion to dismiss is de novo, and the applicable legal standard of review for the denial of a motion to dismiss turns on whether the appellant seeks to challenge the legal conclusions of the trial court or its factual determinations, citing State v. Crosby, 182 Connecticut Appellate, 373. In the Crawford case, the Supreme Court explained that what constitutes a reasonable period of time is a question of fact that will depend on the circumstances of each case. And in the cases following Crawford, the court has articulated a burden-shifting framework where once a defendant puts forth evidence that suggests that he or she was not elusive, was available and readily approachable, the burden then shifts to the state to prove that the delay in executing the warrant was not unreasonable. That's State versus Soldi, 92, Connecticut Appellate, 849. In Swabilius, the Supreme Court expanded on Crawford and concluded that, quote, if the defendant can demonstrate his availability during the statutory period, the state must make some effort to serve the arrest warrant before the relevant statute of limitations expires, or offer some evidence explaining why its failure to do so was reasonable under the circumstances, end quote. So we have our factual background, our standard of review. Where did the court come down on this? Keep in mind that in this case, the state conceded that the defendant satisfied his preliminary burden because the defendant was not elusive and was available for arrest throughout the relevant time period. The appellate court agreed and concluded that the defendant had, in fact, satisfied his burden. The appellate court then held that the trial court properly denied the defendant's motion to dismiss nonetheless and reasoned that 
Contrary to the defendant's claim, the trial court applied the correct legal test as set forth in the Swabilius case in determining whether the statute of limitations had been told. In Swabilius, the state had the burden to show that, notwithstanding the defendant's availability, that any delay in the service of the warrant after the expiration of the statute of limitations was reasonable. In this case, the appellate court concluded that the trial court correctly determined that the state made reasonable efforts to serve the arrest warrant before the statute of limitations had expired. And that delay in the service of the warrant was reasonable as the stipulated facts showed that following the defendant's confession to the robbery, the state expeditiously prepared and obtained an arrest warrant and the writ of habeas corpus to transport the defendant who was incarcerated at the time to the superior court to serve him with a warrant before the expiration of the limitation period. And the fact that the defendant was not transported to the superior court and served with a warrant until seven days after the statute of limitations had expired did not undermine the reasonable efforts of the state. The appellate court further concluded that the trial court properly based its decision in part on the state's assertion that the nine-day delay from signing the writ of habeas to the transport of the defendant was not unusual given the logistical practical and safety precautions associated with transporting a person from the correctional facility to a courthouse as it was within the purview of the court to use its knowledge of the inner workings of the court and the processes by which the incarcerated person is transported to the court in its determination of the state's efforts. So in sum, the judgment was affirmed by the appellate court. Case number two is State versus Han. That's AC43016. This opinion drafted by Judge Alvord, officially released on December 1, 2020. Here are your facts. In May of 2017, the defendant was arrested. And on May 15, 2018, a substitute information charged the defendant with the crime of sexual assault in the fourth degree in violation of Connecticut General Statute 53A. Dash 73A, subsection A, subsection 5. On that date, the defendant applied for admission to the Accelerated Rehabilitation Program under Connecticut General Statute 54-56E. On June 5, 2018, the trial court, Judge Oliver, denied the defendant's application for the Accelerated Rehabilitation Program after concluding that the allegations against the defendant were too serious and that it could not find that the defendant would probably not offend again in the future. On November 29, 2018, the trial court, Judge McNamara, reconsidered the defendant's application for the program and granted it. The court imposed the maximum statutory period of supervision, two years, and the following conditions on the defendant. One, obey all state and federal laws. Two, comply with any other counseling and treatment deemed appropriate by the Office of Adult Probation. Three, have no contact with the victim in the case. Four, after a period of accelerated rehabilitation and with the approval of the probation office, the defendant may travel overseas for medical work. So on January 28, 2019, the defendant was deemed appropriate for sex offender treatment at The Connection a center for treatment of problem sexual behavior where an evaluator had assessed the defendant as a moderate risk for reoffending. 
On February 4th, 2019, the defendant signed a treatment agreement with the connection, which included a condition that he not act in a position of power over others. Thereafter, the defendant disclosed to the probation office that he was a participant in the Mankind Project, which the probation office described as a global network of nonprofit organizations focused on modern male initiation, self-awareness, and personal growth. The defendant was participating in this Mankind Project, online groups, and hosting meetings at his house, and he had submitted an action plan to probation requesting that he be allowed to attend out-of-state retreats with the Mankind Project, including one in New York. The probation office contacted the leader of the New York retreat and learned that the defendant would attend the retreat as a, quote, staff man, unquote, and that he potentially would be in a leadership position over other participants. In a March 8, 2019 letter to the court, a probation officer articulated a concern that the defendant's participation in the Mankind Project placed him in a position of power over vulnerable members. The probation office then requested that the court impose 16 additional conditions as part of the defendant's accelerated rehabilitation program and require the defendant to sign a computer access agreement in order to effectively supervise the defendant's accelerated rehabilitation and properly enforce the connection treatment agreement. On March 26, 2019, over the defendant's objection, the court entered a bond condition of no contact with the Mankind Project, but did not rule on probation's requested additional conditions. On May 3, 2019, the defendant filed a written objection to some but not all of the additional conditions proposed by probation in the March letter as unnecessary, unreasonable, overly burdensome, and related, unrelated to the underlying alleged offense. At a hearing on May 15, 2019, regarding additional conditions proposed for the defendant's participation in the accelerated rehabilitation program, the court, Judge McNamara, concluded that the circumstances of the case were too serious based on the defendant's participation in the Mankind Project, and sua sponte terminated his participation in the accelerated rehabilitation program. This appeal followed. There are two claims to review here. The first one is the state's argument that the trial court's ruling was not a final judgment for the purposes of appeal, and thus the appellate court lacked jurisdiction to consider it. The defendant characterized the trial court's ruling that it was going to terminate the defendant's participation in the accelerated rehabilitation program as a termination of his participation in the program. The state, however, contended that Despite the trial court's use of the word terminate, the court's ruling was not in fact such a termination, but a reconsideration of its decision granting the participation of the defendant in the program and a denial of the application. The state's argument rested on the court's prefatory, prefatory statements that it had been led astray and it made a mistake, those are quotes, in granting the defendant's application for the program. The state suggested that those statements implied that the court's intent to reconsider and deny the defendant's application for the program, notwithstanding the court's express statement that it was going to terminate the defendant's participation in the program. The appellate court states that, quote, unless otherwise provided by law, the jurisdiction of our appellate courts 
is restricted to appeals from final judgments, end quote, citing Krausman versus Liberty Mutual Insurance Company, 195 Connecticut Appellate, 682. Pursuant to 5456E subsection F, an order of the court terminating the participation of a defendant in the accelerated rehabilitation program is a final judgment for the purposes of appeal. Conversely, an order of the court granting or denying a defendant's application for that program is not a final judgment for appellate purposes. Moreover, the construction of a judgment presents a question of law over which the appellate court exercises plenary review, citing Bauer v. Bauer, 308, Connecticut, 124. Accordingly, the appellate court held that contrary to the state's claim, the trial court's ruling terminating the defendant's participation in the accelerated rehabilitation program was indeed a final judgment for appellate purposes. The appellate court declined the state's invitation to disregard the plain and unambiguous language of the trial court and concluded that consistent consistent with the ordinary meaning of the plain language of the court, the ruling in which the court stated it was going to terminate the defendant's participation constituted a termination of the defendant's participation in the program under the statute, and it was not a reconsideration and denial of the program. And so here we are on to claim two. The appellate court addressed the defendant's claim on appeal that the trial court abused its discretion in terminating sua sponte his participation in the program. The defendant specifically argued that the trial court erred by one, failing to provide notice that the court was even contemplating termination, two, failing to permit argument on the termination, and three, terminating the program despite the fact that there was an insufficient basis to conclude that the defendant violated the imposed conditions of the program. In this case, the appellate court states that it reviews these rulings regarding a defendant's participation in the accelerated rehabilitation program for abuse of discretion, and that its review of trial court's exercise of that discretion is limited to questions of whether the court correctly applied the law and whether it could reasonably conclude as it did, and citing State versus Jersey G, 183 Connecticut Appellate, 757. So here's our holding. The appellate court held that the trial court abused its discretion in terminating the defendant's participation in the program. The court concluded that the defendant was not afforded notice that the court intended to terminate his participation in the program. The court did not allow the defendant to be heard, and the defendant did not have the opportunity to present evidence regarding successful compliance with the program. The court reasoned that the state ought sought only to impose additional conditions requested by the probation office in order to keep a, quote, good eye, end quote, on the defendant. And at the hearing on the additional conditions, neither the state nor the defendant were even aware that the trial court was contemplating termination of the defendant's participation in the program. The appellate court further concluded that the trial court could improperly base its decision to terminate the defendant's participation on extrajudicial information related to the Mankind Project. When terminating the program, the trial court stated that the Mankind Project, as far as I know, may be a fraternal organization, but it also has some interesting idiosyncrasies where parties go and they're subjected to more like a boot camp atmosphere where parties are told not to wear any clothing when they're there. But the appellate court stated that there was nothing in the record to support such a statement by the court. The court reasoned that the defendant was not informed of the source of the information, nor given any opportunity to review or rebut it, 
and the mere allegation concerning activities of the Mankind Project without additional evidence was an insufficient basis to terminate the defendant's participation in the program. In sum, this judgment was reversed and the case was remanded for further proceedings. That brings us to our final case this week. It's from the Supreme Court, State versus Rivera. Your citation is SC20277, Judge Dioria. This case was officially released on June 10th, 2020, but published in the Connecticut Law Journal on December 1, 2020, which is why it's here this week. Here are your facts. On March 24, 2015, Mr. Chase was attempting to tow the defendant's vehicle from a fire lane at a condominium complex in East Hartford when the defendant confronted Mr. Chase, demanding to know why his vehicle was being towed. At this relevant time, Mr. Chase was employed as a tow truck driver and authorized to tow vehicles on that property if they were parked in a restricted area, such as in front of a dumpster or in a fire lane. After the defendant opened the driver's door of his vehicle, Mr. Chase raised the vehicle off the ground to prevent the defendant from driving it away off the back of the tow truck. The defendant then retrieved a pipe from a nearby garage and used it to strike the tow truck. Thereafter, Mr. Chase, fearing that the defendant was going to hit him with the pipe, retrieved a can of mace and sprayed it at the defendant. The defendant then took a knife out of his pocket and Mr. Chase, fearing for his life, drove away in the tow truck. Mr. Chase then called the police to report the incident, and the police subsequently arrested the defendant. At trial, the defendant raised the defenses of self-defense and defense of property, arguing that Mr. Chase was attempting to steal the defendant's vehicle for his own financial benefit. The defendant was permitted to and did ask Mr. Chase about previously having been convicted of larceny. In response to the trial court's decision to preclude the defendant from cross-examining Mr. Chase about the specific facts underlying Mr. Chase's prior misdemeanor convictions of larceny and breach of peace, the defendant claimed that this evidence would have served to impeach Mr. Chase by showing his character for untruthfulness and by establishing his motive, intent, and interest in attempting to steal the defendant's vehicle to finance his drug habit and in lying about having sprayed the defendant with mace in self-defense. The defendant appealed to the appellate court claiming that the trial court had violated his right to confrontation and to present a defense when it precluded him from cross-examining Chase about the facts underlying certain of Chase's prior convictions. But the appellate court concluded that the trial court did not abuse its discretion in limiting the defendant's cross-examination of Chase and rejected the defendant's constitutional claims. The Supreme Court granted certification, and here we are. The standard of review here in this case is pretty simple. To the extent that the trial court's admission of evidence is based on an interpretation of the Connecticut Code of Evidence, the standard of review is plenary, but the reviews of the decision to admit or exclude evidence, if premised on a correct view of the law, is for an abuse of discretion. State versus Davis, 298 Connecticut one. Claim one. On appeal, the defendant first claimed that the appellate court incorrectly determined that he did not establish that the trial court violated his rights to confrontation and to present a defense by precluding him from cross-examining Mr. Chase about specific facts underlying Chase's three prior larceny convictions, specifically the fact that Chase 
stole cell phones on four prior occasions between 2012 and 2013 to finance a drug habit. The defendant argued that because a larceny conviction is probative of veracity, these underlying facts would have impeached Chase's credibility and thus were admissible under sections 4-4 and 6-6 of the Connecticut Code of Evidence and these underlying facts would have established Chase's motive, intent, and interest, namely that Chase had similarly attempted to steal the defendant's car to finance his drug habit and had testified against the defendant to cover up his own illegal actions and thus were admissible under sections 4-5C and 6-5 of the Connecticut Code of Evidence. As to this first claim, the Supreme Court first addressed the defendant's argument that the appellate court incorrectly determined that the trial court had not abused its discretion by precluding cross-examination about the facts underlying Mr. Chase's prior larceny convictions because this testimony was admissible under sections 4-4 and 6-6 of the Connecticut Code of Evidence as evidence of Chase's character for untruthfulness. The trial court had prevented the defendant from inquiring into the facts underlying those prior larceny convictions, including Chase's motivation for the prior thefts, on the ground that Chase's motivation on those prior occasions were not probative of his veracity. In response, the defendant argued that Chase's history of drug abuse was probative of veracity because, quote, habitual users of narcotics become habitual liars, end quote. That was relying on an Illinois appellate court decision in People v. Accardo, for the citation, go to 195 Illinois Appellate 3D 180. The Supreme Court in this case rejected the defendant's argument that the appellate court incorrectly determined that the trial court had not abused its discretion by precluding him from inquiring into the underlying facts of Chase's prior larceny convictions to impeach Chase's character for truthfulness, for untruthfulness, rather. The Supreme Court reasoned that Although drug addiction or drug use may be probative of a witness's credibility for other reasons, such as a witness's ability to accurately perceive and to remember events, it has previously rejected the proposition that drug addiction is probative of veracity, citing State v. Dobson, 221 Connecticut 128. The Supreme Court also stated that the defendant's constitutional rights to confrontation and to present a defense are not violated when the trial court precludes a defendant from impeaching a witness's character for truthfulness through evidence of drug use. The Supreme Court accordingly concluded that, in exercising its discretion, the trial court reasonably could have determined that any possible connection between Chase's prior drug habit and his character for untruthfulness was outweighed by the potential prejudice in a case in which the defendant presented no evidence that Chase was using narcotics or had a drug addiction during the relevant time period. The Supreme Court next addressed the defendant's argument that the facts underlying Chase's larceny convictions were relevant to Chase's intent to steal the defendant's vehicle to finance his drug habit because Chase previously had stolen to finance his drug habit and thus was motivated to falsely inculpate the defendant to cover up Chase's own misconduct. On this basis, the defendant argued that this testimony was admissible under sections 4-5 subsection C and 6-5 of the Connecticut Code of Evidence to establish motive, 
interest, and intent. The Supreme Court in this case held that the appellate court correctly determined that the trial court had not abused its discretion when it precluded the defendant from cross-examining Chase regarding the facts underlying his prior larceny convictions in order to show that Chase had stolen cell phones to support a drug habit. The Supreme Court stated that under sections 4-5 subsection C and 6-5 of the Connecticut Code of Evidence, evidence of prior misconduct may be admissible if it is relevant to an individual's motive, intent, or interest in testifying and to determine the admissibility of such evidence, the evidence must be relevant and material to at least one of the circumstances encompassed by the exceptions and the probative value of such evidence must outweigh its prejudicial effect. The court cited State versus Stenner for that proposition, 281 Connecticut 742. The Supreme Court concluded that Mr. Chase's motivation for the prior theft of cell phones was not probative of his veracity, as the trial court, one, reasonably could have concluded that Mr. Chase's motive for stealing them to finance a drug habit two or three years prior to the incident here was not relevant to his character for truthfulness any more than the fact that he had generally a history of theft, which was made known, which was made known to the jury when the defendant asked Mr. Chase whether he previously had been convicted of larceny. Preclusion of evidence of drug use to show character for untruthfulness was in line with the general rule that propensity evidence is inadmissible, as addiction alone could not reasonably be thought to amount to more than a compelling propensity to use drugs. And then two, the trial court reasonably could have determined that any possible connection between Mr. Chase's prior drug habit and his character for untruthfulness was outweighed by the potential for prejudice, as there was no evidence that Mr. Chase was even using drugs or that he had a drug addiction at the time of the incident in question. The Supreme Court further concluded that there was no merit to the defendant's claim that the facts underlying Chase's larceny convictions were admissible to establish Chase's motive, interest, and intent to falsely inculpate the defendant and to cover up his own misconduct. The defendant, having failed to establish that Mr. Chase had an ongoing drug habit at the time of the incident at issue or that Mr. Chase's conduct underlying his prior larceny convictions was sufficiently similar to the conduct at issue in the present case. The defendant next claimed on appeal that the appellate court incorrectly determined that he did not establish that the trial court had violated his rights to confrontation and to present a defense by precluding him from cross-examining Chase about the specific facts underlying Chase's prior breach of peace conviction, specifically the fact that by pleading guilty to the breach of peace charge, he admitted that he had lied about using pepper spray in self-defense because they were relevant to veracity, intent, motive, and a common scheme or pattern. Now, the trial court had declined to permit inquiry into that breach of peace conviction, as well as the underlying facts. The trial court determined that the nature of a conviction of breach of peace was not indicative of veracity and did not impeach Chase's credibility by showing that he lied about having acted in self-defense. Specifically, the court was unwilling to find that Mr. Chase's guilty plea was the equivalent of an admission that he lied about having acted in self-defense, especially in light of Mr. Chase's having maintained at the plea proceedings that he had, in fact, acted in self-defense. Because the trial court found that his guilty plea was not inconsistent with his statements regarding self-defense, it also found that this evidence was not relevant to intent, motive, 
absence of malice, knowledge, or a common scheme or plan. Accordingly, the trial court determined that this evidence would inject collateral issues into the trial and lacked probative value due to its remoteness in time. The Supreme Court in our case today held that the appellate court correctly determined that the defendant had failed to establish that the trial court violated his rights to confrontation and to present an evidence when it precluded him from cross-examining Chase about the fact that Chase, by pleading guilty to the crime of breach of peace in connection with a prior incident involving an altercation with another individual, had admitted that he was lying about using pepper spray in self-defense during that incident. The Supreme Court stated that, quote, whether two statements are actually inconsistent is a determination that lies within the discretionary authority of the trial court, unquote, citing State v. Avis, 209 Connecticut, 290. The Supreme Court consequently concluded that the trial court did not abuse its discretion in determining that Chase's prior statements to the police about acting in self-defense in connection with the prior incident were not inconsistent with his guilty plea to the charge of breach of peace and thus were not evidence of Mr. Chase's having previously lied about acting in self-defense, as Chase had maintained throughout the plea proceedings on the breach of peace charge that he had used pepper spray in self-defense. Moreover, the Supreme Court here stated that contrary to the defendant's claim that a guilty plea is an admission of guilt, it has previously recognized that a myriad of reasons may explain why an individual would plead guilty, as there is no open and visible connection between a guilty plea and an individual's state of mind at the time for the crime for which the plea is entered, citing State v. Tony M., 332 Connecticut, 810. In sum, the judgment of the appellate court was affirmed. That does it for this week on the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. I'm Dan Lage, here each and every week, giving you the latest criminal law updates from the appellate and Supreme Court. Stay tuned. My colleagues are coming up after me with more on the podcast. See you next week. Next up, injury law cases. If you know someone who has been injured, Connecticut Trial Firm can help. Our lawyers handle car accidents, malpractice, dog bite, and premises liability cases across the state of Connecticut. Our lawyers have achieved multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements. Our trial team has the experience and the resources to make a difference. Connecticut trial firm attorneys are always available to consult with fellow attorneys on injury law issues at any time. Put the power of over 124 five-star reviews to work for your personal injury referrals by trusting the team at Connecticut trial firm. Visit cttrialfirm.com for more information or call us 24-7 at 860-471-8333. Hi. It's Connecticut personal injury attorney Ryan McKean here from Connecticut Trial Firm. And the bad news is this week, there were no Connecticut tort law decisions rendered by either the Connecticut Supreme or Appellate Court. The good news is, I'm giving away a copy of my new Connecticut tort law book, which covers every Supreme and Appellate Court tort law decision from 2017 through June of 2020. And you can get that by going to my website, cttrialfirm.com slash Connecticut hyphen tort hyphen law. Again, that's cttrialfirm.com slash Connecticut hyphen tort hyphen law. 
I'll be giving away one copy of my book to a lucky listener. First come, first serve. Uh, Can't wait to send it to you. Hope you have a great week. Next up, family law cases. If you know someone who needs the advice of a lawyer who focuses exclusively on divorce and other family matters, Rich Rockland is your guy. Rich handles cases all across the state of Connecticut, including the state appellate court, and welcomes your referrals. Rich will personally handle the case and will be attentive to all your clients' needs. Family litigation is stressful, and you don't need your referrals' stress being taken out on you. Rich's goal is to counsel his clients through a family law case with an eye towards resolving the issue in a manner that protects their interests while minimizing their stress and yours. If you would like to discuss a referral of a family law matter, please contact us at 860-357-9158. We have virtual consults available and in-person consults in West Hartford Center and welcome the call from fellow attorneys. Hi, this is Rich Rockland. Uh, There are no new cases this week, but as soon as there are new cases, we'll have them up and reviewed and ready to go. Have a great week. Do you want to get into social media marketing? Unsure of where to begin? The Firm Flex DIY plan was created for small firm and solo lawyers who want to start social media marketing for their firm but can't commit to the large budgets many agencies charge. In just five minutes a day, with the help of the Firm Flex coaches, you get daily ideas, weekly themes, hashtags, and stock images you can use to post on social media and market your firm. With a private and vibrant Facebook group you can always turn to, the Firm Flex DIY plan gives you the ultimate control over your marketing. By using the Firm Flex DIY program, as well as our weekly coaching and industry leading hacks, you can set your social media up for success, all for around $3 a day. Try it today at GetFirmFlex.com DIY. Thanks for listening to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get alerted every time a new episode is released. And to give us a five-star rating, you can also watch this podcast on our YouTube channel each week if you prefer to watch in the comfort of your office or stream it on ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com. The Connecticut Case Law Podcast is sponsored by Ruane Attorneys at Law, the Connecticut Trial Firm, and Rich Rockland Law. Attorney J. Ruane, Connecticut Jurist Number 415988, is responsible for the content of this advertisement. See you next week.